0: Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmund, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and
1: discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. We're excited to come here every week and just dive into theology, dive into the Bible. And we're in a series where we're going through problem passages of the Bible. And it's not that the Bible is problematic, but that we come to places in the Bible where it makes us pause and makes us really wonder, wow, what is God telling us here? Because he could have written this in a much smoother way. He could have maybe written this in a simpler way, but he wrote it in a complex way that makes us really pause. And so we're now zooming into John chapter six And I'll just read a couple verses and then we'll get going. Verse 54 says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Okay, now I don't have grandeur of cannibalism. You know i i'm not like man honey it's our anniversary we need to go and find a human to eat Hmm. and find blood to drink Uh, but here we have jesus who's very clearly saying a part of your regular church life is to eat my flesh and to drink my blood and so how do we approach this guys i mean are we it seems like jesus repeats himself where he is trying to be abundantly clear that he actually wants us to eat not just his body but he actually says flesh And not just to drink wine or juice, but to actually drink my blood. So when we take communion, how how does John chapter 6 influence the way that we think about communion? Michael? Well, you know, the funny thing is we talk about this being
0: a hard passage, and in the passage itself, you go down to verse 60, and it says, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. So, it is a it is a hard passage. Even back then, it was a hard saying. Yeah. And so, we we bring it up because I think it still carries the same Difficulties in some ways so we that it we, did back then. So
1: we can't say, well, it's just because we weren't Greek speakers. Yeah. And if we knew Greek, if we knew the original, then everybody'd be like, oh, this sounds really cool. But people are actually deserting Jesus around these things. Like Jesus, many times we could have consulted him and said, hey, let's let our PR marketing department come and help, help train you how to smooth over the, your speech to attract as many people as possible. But Jesus seems to do the opposite many times and actually clarify things to the harder point.
0: Yeah, and this is one of those times where not only is it difficult there, we go down throughout church history and we talk about it today. And we see some great divisions within the church about this passage.
1: Okay, so give me, give me the lay of the land. How do different people in different churches, maybe people that are listening to this right now are like, man, I don't know how my church interprets John chapter 6. Uh, give us a little bit of the lay of our city of how people will interpret this passage.
0: Well, all of us sitting here are Protestants. And, as protestants uh, we we take the communion, we take the bread, and we take the wine. But we have a different understanding of what that means than some traditions within the church mm-hmm. and uh, we We often talk about this idea of real presence, although that may not cover it because we say, in the communion, is there the real presence of Christ? So you could say Jesus is really there. Really there. But okay. some people would say the real presence has to do with his real spiritual presence. Okay. But whenever you get into Roman Catholicism, whenever you get into um, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and even to some degree Lutheranism, you have this real presence that is there that is the that this is the actual body and blood of Christ. That whenever you take communion, this passage is a key passage that we are talking about eating his flesh, and drinking his blood. That is a stumbling block to people here, and as many would say, it continues to be a stumbling block to people like me who look at this and say, no, it's not being literal. It's not really talking about his flesh and his blood that uh, we are drinking or eating. But um, many times today, guys, it is, uh, this is the key passage that we find among Roman Catholic apologists that are using this, there's some kind of key things that they will bring up often, and this is one of those, and they will ask this question. They will say, if Jesus was not being literal here, if Jesus was not providing the stumbling block, Michael, that you stumble over because you do not believe that Jesus is physically present, that you are actually drinking his blood and eating his flesh, um, why did he let him walk away? Because this is what happens. Many of them grumble about this. Many of them get offended by this, and they leave. And they would say, well, if it's not the real presence, if it's not his actual flesh and blood, then why did Jesus let him walk away? He should have stopped and explained to him, hey, listen, guys, I'm not being literal. Don't get offended by this. It's not as big a deal as you think. Come on back. Let me re-explain this in a way that is uh, more palatable to you.
1: So does that mean that when you take communion, you believe you're actually eating the body of Jesus? Not, Not me. Okay, well, then why why are you not agreeing with what they say? Well, I, I, I we'll get into that a little bit more, but I want to talk about this as a problem passage mainly. So that's a great way for you to spin my question. Well, I, I, I think that it needs to be— I'm nailing you to the wall right now, brother. All right, well,
0: you, well it'll end the broadcast because I've got <laughs> such a definitive answer. Okay, so you want you want to build up for you to give your definitive answer. Well, we want to talk about it, and I want to see if what everybody else okay, sees Sam, here. Okay, Sam,
2: where are you at, brother? Well, you guys have already started out on the assumption that John 6 has reference to the Lord's Supper, and I'm not convinced that that's the case. Okay, Um, I'm not persuaded that Jesus had in mind the uh, institution of the Lord's table that would come later in chapter 13. Uh, I know that some just simply assume that that's got to be the case, but if you read this this entire chapter, we we need to set it in its context. Remember that Jesus says, uh, alluded to the uh, Old Testament where, uh, back up in, um, in verse uh, 32, he, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is drawing on the Old Testament experience of Israel who experienced the manna in the wilderness that sustained them physically. And he said, you need to understand that was pointing forward to the real bread that brings not just physical life, but spiritual life. And I'm that bread. And so you need to eat of this true bread from heaven. Now, does he literally mean, you know, grind with your teeth and swallow and ingest in some physiological way? I don't think so. And let me explain why. Down in verse um, 54, Tim, you read this at the beginning. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that is very closely parallel to verse 40 where Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice that. Both phrases, both passages. Have eternal life, raise him up on the last day. And I think that when Jesus says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, that's what he means when he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. So to me, it's rather obvious that feeding on the flesh of Jesus and drinking the blood of Jesus is a very vivid graphic metaphor for believing in him and trusting him and relying upon him. And this, I think, is even confirmed further down in verse 63 where Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Okay. So, so if you think that somehow ingesting my flesh in some literal way is going to help, Jesus says, no, it's the Spirit who gives life. You, you've misunderstood. Uh, I, I think Jesus actually does explain what he means. Um, I, I think that uh, obviously many were confused, and they said this is a hard saying. Maybe they were still confounded by that rather graphic language. But I think our Lord is fairly clear that what he's saying here is um, you can eat all kinds of literal food and drink all kinds of literal drink, and it'll sustain you physically, but you need to understand there's something that you need more than physical life. You need eternal life, and that comes from eating my flesh, drinking my blood, namely ingesting me in faith, relying upon me, being nourished in your heart and your soul uh, for eternal life and the forgiveness of sins.
1: You know what, Sam? I actually totally agree with you. I mean, as I, even the last time I went through and read through this and studied it, it, it really struck me that it, I don't feel like this is talking about, about communion either. It, instead, I mean, Jesus himself, it's perfect. You actually do that weird thing of putting Scripture in context. You know, if you could stop doing such a sensible thing. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> because, because it does seem like the example that Jesus is giving is saying, Guys, I want you to get in your headspace. I want to get into your headspace in the desert after the Exodus manna. You know, and the purpose of manna was that if God did not provide manna, you would die. You had no hope for life apart from manna coming from heaven. And Jesus is saying in the same way that they had to eat the manna, uh, you have a tangible expression in the same way that they tangibly had to eat the manna, trusting that God was keeping them alive. So that is what I am. Like, when you think of me, don't think of me as just being this person. Think of me as being manna sent from heaven. And if you don't eat me, you don't live. Yeah, and, and let's not forget what happens at the very first part of chapter 6.
2: again why it's really helpful for our readers to hear us when we say when we say read the passage in context we really mean that because chapter six opens with a very famous story of Jesus feeding the five thousand with a few pieces of bread and a few fish and you remember how they reacted uh, down in verses uh, 14 and 15 they were thinking about forcing Jesus to become king. In other words, hey, here's a guy who can give us what we need physically. Here's a guy who can perform magical tricks, so let's make him our king. And Jesus' response later in the chapter at the passage we're looking at is, guys, <laughs> you're, you're missing the point. The point of the feeding of these people with the fish and the loaves was designed to point you once again to me as the one who feeds your heart and your soul and satisfies you in a way that nothing that is fleshly or physical ultimately can.
3: I hope our our readers are encouraged as they, I have a cold by the way, can you tell? You sound sound wonderful. I hope our readers are encouraged as they listen to what we're saying. You don't have to read five commentaries Mm -hmm. to figure out some of the insights that have have been shared here. Um, Even going back to verse 18 of chapter 5, It explains that the Jews, which is sort of a code word in John for the religious leaders who were opposed to him, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He was communicating Mm -hmm. very clearly. So you move on from 518 all the way up to our passage. It's basically one long conversation set in a couple different change Mm -hmm. of scenes where he resumes this conversation with them and says, okay, you believe in Moses? Believe in me. Okay, mm -hmm. you like the physical bread? Well, did you know you need spiritual nourishment even more than physical nourishment? I'm the bread of God that came down from heaven. In verses uh, 33 and 34 of chapter 6, he says the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And John is showing us how we all uh, care so much more about physical things than spiritual things instinctually because then they say in a very tone deaf way, Sir, give us this bread always. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm the bread. Don't you get yeah. and we're supposed to remember chapter four of John where mm. he explains that he's the water of life, that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. And what does the woman say? Sir, give me this water. And he says, No, I'm I'm the water. Mm. And uh, in fact, JJ, just
2: go on. You you stopped a little early there. You quoted where Jesus for they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always and look at our Lord's response in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So eating his flesh is coming to him. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So drinking his blood is believing in him. So again, he's clarifying as as much as he possibly can. It just shows you how blind and hard-hearted some of these people are. He's saying, I'm the manna. I'm the true water. I th- quench thirst. I satisfy the hunger in your belly, but not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. Trust me. Embrace me. Um, acknowledge who I am and cast your hope on me.
1: So, J.J., are you leaning towards you're not believing this is speaking about communion as well?
3: No, I mean, to to paraphrase uh, C.S. Lewis famously talking about why, why some people think that heaven is going to be boring because we're going to be sitting on clouds strumming harps, he says very dryly, you know, those— Who cannot understand books written for adults should not read them. Mm -hmm. You know, his point is, you know, Jesus gave us images of music and food and a great feast to stir our imaginations. That heaven's like that, but a thousand times better. And as we read this passage, we see Jesus having a very clear, linear conversation with a group of people who can't understand why he would associate himself with the divine, and and they're really excited about physical subsistence, and he's trying to get them to care about something else. And there's a great lesson in that for all of us. What do we think is the greatest threat to our souls? Mm. Is it unrepentant sin? jesus is trying to explain that to them he's saying Mm -hmm. do you realize that your souls are in jeopardy and i understand that you don't have drinking fountains or 7-elevens and people in this arid dry place do starve to death or could possibly die of thirst if they got Mm -hmm. lost hiking from one place to another so food and water were heavy on the minds of these people in the first century but yet jesus is saying there's Mm -hmm. something even more important than bread and water okay michael so
1: we've got three of us ganged up against you brother um, and you're not one to usually shy away from a fight like, uh, so where are you at, man? Is this talking about communion or not?
0: Well, no, it's not so and much. And can't that, spin on me, brother. It's
1: not so much that I'm, I'm trying to present my view on this.
0: What, I, what I'm trying to do is to say that this is a passage that is prolific within Roman Catholic apologetic circles. Okay. And they use this in such a way that say, assuming that this is talking about communion, yeah. um, that why did he let him walk away why is it so difficult to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood oftentimes when i look at this i i say well it, even if he is talking about communion here it is such a veiled reference to it mm-hmm. maybe a a type or something that maybe it's explained later on and and that's that that is i'm not i'm not anti-catholic or anything but i do as a protestant want people to be aware and understanding how many will approach this and see it as such a a uh, definitive reference to the difficulty of believing. That whenever you take his flesh and drink his blood or take the communion, you are really chomping on his flesh and well, drinking his blood. And,
1: and don't we have Christological Trinitarian considerations here? Like, is it possible for people all over planet Earth to be chewing on the body of Jesus at the same time?
0: Well, let me, let me say this, first of all, about John. Okay, okay. Let, me, let me say a couple things. First of all, whenever we do get to the upper room discourse, you see John's uh, 21 chapters— And the upper room discourse in John is longer than it is in any other of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. As a matter of fact, it takes up about one-fourth or more of the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. Jesus in the upper room, washing the feet, talking to the apostles about the coming of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just a long time in that upper room but john is the only one that doesn't have an explicit uh recording of the giving of the blood or the excuse me the giving of the bread and the giving of the wine um and john is writing to an audience that he says i'm writing this to you so that you may believe that jesus is the christ and by believing might have life in his name mm-hmm. but yet in the entire gospel there is i believe no reference to the um, communion at all. Hmm. And even if this was, it's a veiled reference that should be explained later on. Hmm. And it's not. But the thing is, uh, the question is, why is Jesus letting him walk away? Why does Jesus act in this kind of... That's a great
3: question. I have a short answer for you, and then Sam can give you a long one. Yeah, go. It's because Jesus would rather have clarity of what they actually believe then let them persist in self-deception about what they think they believe. Mm,
1: That's good brother.
2: I think Jesus himself gives us the answer to the question and it it may uh, be unsettling to some of our hearers and listeners here today. If we look on down uh, Mark Michael you mentioned a moment ago verse 60 when many of his disciples by the way people need to understand John uses the word disciples to refer to anybody who followed Jesus for any reason whatsoever. So they're not committed. Not You, you can be a disciple and be utterly lost. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says over in chapter 8, here's how you know if you're really my disciple, that is do you abide in my word. And he even he used that when he, it says he was talking to the Jews who believed in him. And yet in the same text, it goes on to say that those who believed in him said, you're demonized and we want to kill you. <laughs> so belief and being a disciple in John is not always of a saving nature. Yeah. But so Jesus is coming back to the passage you mentioned. They heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then down in verse 64, Jesus said, there are some of you who do not believe. And Jesus knew who from the beginning were those who were who did not believe and who would betray him. And then verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So Jesus is telling us, let me explain to you why you find this to be hard and why you're turning away, because it hasn't been granted to you by my Father Mm -hmm. to understand what I'm saying. So he is appealing to, in my opinion, unconditional election and irresistible or efficacious grace. Mm -hmm. The Father didn't give... You to me and uh, the spirit has not drawn you to me and given you eyes with which to see and that's
3: why this is so befuddling to you. Mm -hmm. Well unless any of our listeners now become discouraged and picture this hypothetical person who wants really badly to come to Jesus and Jesus says sorry you're not on the list as though they're you know behind the velvet rope outside a club. The point is, these are people coming self-righteously. Why do we know they're coming self-righteously? Because when Jesus tells them they have to come on their knees, they get offended and they say, well, then we won't come at all. So the point is, those who the Father elects, He elects to humility and repentance and people who the Father has drawn come humbly. And Jesus doesn't turn away anybody. He says, whoever comes to me, Mm. I receive. Mm. So it's not
2: as if somebody wants to come and He says, sorry, too late, your name's not written in the book of life. Whosoever will may come. And well, make you know, also, create.
0: and just I know we're out of time here, but um, with uh, Jesus's, in John, John seems to record many times whenever Jesus does say awfully confusing things to the audience. And sometimes will not explain himself the way that they want him to explain himself. Just like whenever he says in John chapter 3, it says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And it's a confusing statement. He does go on to explain this more to Nicodemus, but he's offering something that is confusing. As well, whenever he's with his disciples in John chapter 4, and they were asking him to eat. He says, "I have food to eat that you don't know about." Mm-hmm. And in the passage, it never—they're they're all confused, saying, "Wait a minute! Did what, what happened here? Did he bring something that we don't know about?" And then one other time, whenever he says—and this is the key one—they say, "What authority do you show that you are doing these things?" And he says, "Destroy the temple and raise it again in three days." And this is not until the resurrection do we understand this. Mm.
2: So, in 30 seconds, Michael, since we're running out of time, you raise the issue about the Lord's Table, since our listeners are probably saying, well, I wish they'd answer the question. In what sense is Christ present in the elements of the Lord's Table? If we don't affirm the Roman Catholic view of of the literal body and blood of Jesus there, we don't believe in the real absence, so in what sense is he present
0: Well I think he's present in us whenever we are making the proclamation together in this community of believers and we are proclaiming Christ till he comes it is a it is a proclamation that is dear to us and is very um illustrative of what we believe and what we are proclaiming. And so I don't, I personally do not believe there is some special anointing that comes upon us at this point or some special grace, but it is evidence of the special grace that is within us at the time when we take it together. I love doing Theology Unplugged. These guys love doing Theology Unplugged. But as we end our broadcast, there's something I want to talk to you about, and that, that is about uh, how we exist you see, we're, we're at the end of the year right now, and uh, we are a donor-supported ministry. It is uh, through donations of people like you that, that make us able to exist. If you believe in us, if you think what we're doing is necessary, if you think that theology is for everyone, if you think that well, we need to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind— Um, we would ask you to consider partnering with us. Uh, You can do so by going to the website uh, credohouse.org and clicking on Donate. By donating to us, you support the Theology Unplugged broadcast both on radio and through the podcast, but you also hold up so many other things that we do here at Credo House, and you can check that out on the website. But please, if you believe in what we're doing, go to credohouse.org, click on Donate, and help us out at the end of this year. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. If it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit The Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene Mocha, in fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mentioned that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.